talk about talk about unpredictable, man. You know. Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it. You got to end with those, not start with them, because now it's like, oh, we just want more babies up there. Um, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it to Romans chapter eleven, as we continue on our series this morning in Romans. We are entering into the final stretch of Paul explaining what the gospel really is. Romans is a letter written to the church in Rome, a church that Paul has tremendous love and admiration for, a church that he wants to really write out and explain with such depth and such breadth what the gospel really is and what it means and how it applies and how it affects us. And as he sort of completed his argument for the gospel, what it is, um, we're now in this section that's actually considered by almost all interpreters to be the, uh, almost all interpreters to be the most difficult and complicated part of Romans in Romans chapter 11. Because here Paul is talking about not just the gospel, but how it affects people and how they respond to it. How different people choose to respond differently to the good news of God's grace. Not all people respond the same way. In fact, not even all groups of people, it seems, respond the same way. Paul has been talking prior to this about the Israelites. He's been talking about God's people. And uh, if, you, uh, if you've turned to chapter 11, we're going to just read the first six verses this morning. But I want to actually go back one verse where Paul says at the end of chapter 10, um, and this kind of sums up um, in, his, in his best way, where Israel as a whole group of people is at. And he says this in, in Romans, and, and then what we'll do is we'll put up uh, Romans 11 and, um, and we'll start reading. Um, oh good, I had it up there, that's good. Um, so we're going to start with the end of Romans 10 and then we're going to read through the first six verses of Romans 11 where Paul says this, but of Israel, he says, and he's talking about um, a prophet actually who's speaking about Israel, Isaiah, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. Now we begin in chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant, chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. so great. It'd be funny if I like yelled right after I read about grace. I'd say, quiet that baby down. Um, you know, uh, we have this thing in life where we uh, like to believe that the most, uh, that, that in order for something to be true, that it must be simple, right? Um, that if something starts to get complex, if it starts to have too much detail to it, then we start to go, well, really, does that mean that it's true? Um, because shouldn't things that are true, especially if God created these things, just be so basic and simple and easy to wrap our minds around? 
The reason that Romans 11 can be so complicated as we get into it is because that's not actually the way things work. Even the things that we assume to be the most simple, take a drop of water, look at it under a microscope, break down and understand what makes that thing up, and you realize that all things truly break down to great complexity. It's for that reason that when we start to talk about how the gospel affects people, it gets kind of complex. But that doesn't mean that it isn't true. It doesn't mean, um, in fact, what this is, is Paul's taking the time to say, here's exactly how this is going to affect every different group of people that encounter it. To give you a little bit of backstory on the people of Israel, um, God comes to the people, he comes to Abraham in Genesis, and he says to him, through you I'm going to build a nation. I'm going to bless you with a family. I'm going to build a nation through you. And through that nation, the people of Israel, the Israelites as we know them, the Jewish people as we also know them, um, through them, the world is going to know that I am who I am. That they're going to know, the world is going to know about me. And, and you're going to be my people, he says, and I will be your God. So these people began to grow as a people. They began to grow in number and they began to develop a culture. God gave them the law as a way of um, showing um, what it is to live for him, what good is and what bad is. Um, and as God gave them uh, holy days and he gave them traditions, ways to celebrate him, ways to deal with things like sin in their, in their community and in their life, um, he gave them ways to uh, worship him, he gave them ways to interact with him. And God gave them all of these things um, and ultimately the goal was always the same. That as they grew as a people, as they moved into a promised land even, that they would show the world who he is. And they would do that by choosing to be his people. Uh, because they would choose to be his people, people would look at them and say, um, we see God here in the nation of Israel. They had a choice to make, though. They had a choice constantly to make. And the choice to make was this. Will we choose to be God's people by grace? Or will we try to be God's people through our own effort and through our own work? Now, God is very clear from the beginning. It's only going to be grace, guys. The only way that you'll actually be my children, the only way that you'll actually be in a relationship with me is because of my grace and my choice to elect you as my children. It will not be because you have done all the right things. It will not be because you have followed all of the laws. The law is there as a guide to you. But if you treat it like the thing that gives you life, it will only bring you death. And yet what we see happen throughout the history of the nation of Israel is people will continue to choose again and again and again if we're going to be justified by something. Let's let it be the things that we do. Let's let it be who we can become. Let us be able to be proud of ourselves and what we can accomplish. That's how we'll become God's people. And as God continues to extend the hand of grace to his people again and again, ultimately, um, even as God continues to show them that he is their rescuer, because you see what happens throughout the history of the people of Israel, the Jewish people, is they will continue to suffer. They will suffer under the hands of oppressors. They will suffer under the hands of wandering in the wilderness. They will suffer at the hands of enemies that want to come and take their land from them. And they will be a people who suffer. You, you can be any student. If you're any kind of a student of history and you've looked at the history of the Jewish people, you understand that the Jewish people are known for suffering. 
They are a people who continually has suffered at the hands of others. In fact, there are people in positions of power who will continually, throughout the history of humanity, discover that they can build some kind of a platform on simply being against Jewish people. Uh, It seems almost kind of random that they would do it, and yet people continue to do it. And we see it from everywhere, what we read about in the Bible, to things like the Holocaust and World War II. And we continue to see it today. There's a fairly well-known author who passed away recently named Anne Rice. She is a novelist. She, she wrote Interview with the Vampire. If you guys all love that book, I guess I haven't read it, but, you know, it's Interview with the Vampire, so that sounds interesting. And as she was, uh, uh, as she was an atheist growing up, um, she eventually would become a Christian simply because of what she uh, read about the history of the Jewish people. How apparent it was to her, a person from the outside of all of this, person who was hostile to the thought of God, that it is clear that there's this group of people who have suffered so much, and yet they should be gone. They should not exist anymore. They, as a people, should cease to exist. And yet it seems like someone has been helping them continue to survive and even to thrive. Now, if, um, if you're very familiar with the Jewish culture, the Jewish faith, uh, people will often have two answers about, about what it is that brings their people through these times of pain and suffering. Uh, some will say it is our traditions, it is our culture, it is our way of life, it is our community, it is our shared history and experiences. But others, I think more accurately, will say it is our God who rescues us. So you see how even in the very history of these people, God has allowed himself, caused it to be that he is their rescuer. He's not just somebody working alongside them. Every step of the way, it seems that God is reminding the Israelites, it will be because I came in and rescued you from whatever it was that was causing you death. That act of saving, that act of rescuing is grace. When the person comes in, to rescue you from your enemies. It is not because you have earned it or deserved it. It is because that person is showing an act of grace to you. So you see how God has continually throughout history and with his people, as we read in the Bible again and again, he has been very clear about the message that it is grace that is, makes it possible for these to be his people, for them to choose to have life in him. But they have to make a choice. And what we see is overall... Overall, the majority, it seems, of the Israelites will continually choose to base their relationship with God on good works. Instead of being known as the people of God, they'll be known as the people of the law, people of the way that they choose to live, their traditions, all the way to the point that when Jesus himself comes to save them again, all they want is someone to save them from the Roman oppressors. They say, you're supposed to come and deliver us from the bad guy. That's how this works. Jesus says, I've come to save you from yourselves. Their response is to reject him. Why? Because they would prefer a relationship with God that is based on their good works, their actions. This is something that is not just a thing that exists within, of course, the Jewish culture or within the Israelite people or what we read about with this one group of people that Jesus comes to. Preoccupation with righteousness will make grace into the last thing that you ever want. I'll say that again. If you're someone who's preoccupied with being righteous, with 
coming up with a way to, to show that you're good enough, with dedicating your life to being a good person. If you become preoccupied with that, then when grace comes in, it will seem unappealing, it will seem cheap, it will seem too easy, it will not make sense, it might even make you angry, but you'll most certainly be prone to reject it. If you, like many of the Israelites, are preoccupied with your own righteousness, with something that you're trying to produce yourself, there is such a huge difference between choosing God based on grace and trying to attain a relationship with God through the works. I was listening to a song this last week um, by a Christian singer, and he's singing about sort of the pain of living in this world and looking forward to the kingdom of heaven. And there was this one lyric in the song that I heard, and I thought, this sums up what it is to be a Christian, what it is to get the gospel. He says, I'm coming to you because I'm angry. Looking at the world around me, And he says, I'm coming to you, God, because I'm angry. And then he immediately says, I'm coming to you because I'm guilty. And then he says, I'm coming to you because you're the one who left the flock for the one. The gospel message says, rather than be angry with everything I see out there, if I understand what the Bible in Romans has told me about the human condition, it is that even my own anger at the things that bother me will cause me to look inward and say, God, I, re- I, I get it, that I myself am guilty of the things that make me angry often in other people in the world around me. And rather than need a God who is going to bring wrath and vengeance on my enemies, what I need is a God who is going to leave the flock to save the one who it seems is me yet again. The Jewish people had a choice to make. Their choice was... Will we um, choose a relationship with God that is based on works, or will we choose one that is based on grace? And they, overall as a people, as we see when Jesus came and presented the gospel to them, reject the gospel of grace. Paul has talked about this up till this point. He's talked about how they as a people have done this, and the church sees it because the church is predominantly Gentile at this point, which means people who are not Jewish. What happened was the gospel moved from uh, being preached to the Jewish people to now the Gentile people, who it turns out, because they weren't so obsessed with righteousness, actually ended up being more receptive to the message of grace. How infuriating is that? You're telling me that the harder that I try and the more I obsess about being good, the more foreign the grace of God and the gospel might be? Well, eventually, it'll beat you down and you'll realize how much you need God's grace. But yeah, that is kind of the way it works. It is with this in mind that Paul says these first few verses, whoa, that was my whole sermon. All right, let's pray. That's the grace of God right there. Paul asks this very natural and important question. He says, I ask then, one of his rhetorical questions that Paul loves, has God rejected his people? If they've rejected him, has he not just wholesale said, I'm done with them, I cannot reach them with my grace, I'm done. This is the question that Paul asks to the church, mostly of Gentiles. He asks it because he knows it's what they're thinking. He knows they're going... Of course God should have rejected them. It sounds like he has, and his answer to it is this. 
by no means. And then he says the obvious, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, meaning I'm as much of an Israelite as a person can be. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So Paul's answer to this is he says, no, God has not rejected all the Israelites. It's, it's a little too simple and easy to say that it worked that way. That, that, that they were his people, but they said no to him, so he just wrote all of them off, rejected them, and said, now I'm going to move on to someone else. God doesn't work this way. And it's kind of complicated, because people, it turns out, are a mess and are complicated. Paul says to them the obvious thing, I'm an Israelite, God reached me. Turns out they weren't as far along, far gone as you would think. Paul himself raised as a Jew of Jews, he says, one of the persecutors of the Christians, meaning one of the people really responsible for even the death of Jesus. He wanted that to happen. He cheered it on when it did. Paul says, God reached me with his grace. So no, he hasn't rejected these people. Paul's words to them here is, God still chose some who respond to his grace. Now, what he, what he uses in trying to make this argument is he brings them back to the prophet Elijah. He says this, Lord, because um, he says, here, I'll go back one. This thing's not working super well. There we go. Um, all right, I'm going to go forward. He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. This is what Elijah himself says in the Old Testament. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So what, what, what happens here is um, Elijah, like many of the prophets, dedicated his life, because God called him to do this, to preach the word of, of a relationship with God, of turning from their ways um, and turning back to God. He dedicated his whole life to this. He's pretty invested in these people choosing God. And what does Elijah end up coming and saying to God? What's crazy about this quote here, or what he's quoting back in the Old Testament in Kings, is this is, uh, this is when, right after Elijah, like anybody, if you go, okay, do you know anything in the Bible about a guy named Elijah? People be like, didn't he do the thing on the mountaintop, Carmel? There was a mountaintop made of Carmel, something like that. Yes, that's Elijah. And he did this thing on the mountaintop where they were these, uh, these, these the people, being the people, were continually choosing to worship Baal, these false gods, these false idols, and to listen to their prophets, and to listen to their priests, and to go their way. Um, and so there was no rain in the land, and so they have this big epic showdown happen on this mountaintop that is absolutely insane and crazy. And um, Elijah just like makes a mockery of all these other gods and these other priests and prophets and everything. And then they end up killing all the prophets of Baal and, uh, because God comes down and all the stuff, the fire and the water on the altar. But all that to say, Elijah's doing pretty well at this point. He's like, God showed up. Amazing, miraculous things happened. The people saw that these false gods were nothing. Maybe they will stop choosing them. And then what happens is a representative of the people and someone loyal to those prophets that were all killed and everything still ends up coming back to Elijah and basically just says this, hey, guess what? I'm going to kill you. You don't know when, you don't know where, but I'm going to kill you. This isn't over. So he just, he loses it. He's like, God, these people... Uh, do not want you. 
these people do not want to hear this message. These people are like the, just the worst, you know, and I'm all, I was all for them. But God, uh, please just realize that none of these people are choosing you. Can we move on from them? Can we let them go? And God's response to him is not so fast. There are some who I have chosen. There are some who will respond. There are some with whom, even though they are a part of this group, that my grace will break through and it will reach them in their hearts. Paul is essentially saying here that even when an entire group of people seem predisposed against God, that that doesn't mean that God cannot reach people there. This is huge for us to understand that there is no group of people living on this planet that is beyond the reach of the gospel, that is beyond the reach of God. There is no group of people, I'll say it again, on this planet who seem against God that is beyond the reach of God and the gospel. That is a very hard thing for us to believe. Living in a world in which we are naturally predisposed to lump groups of people together and to say, the one thing I know for sure, even though I can't control anything you're saying or doing, is that you're not going to get God. There's just no way. There's no way. This was how the Gentiles were themselves predisposed to see the Israelite people. This is a group of people who it almost seems like their kind of identity is in keeping to choose a law and rules over grace and a relationship with God. Who could be more conditioned against the idea of grace than these people whose entire identity is wrapped up in, it seems like, following these rules and doing these things? There's no way that someone like that can ever come to faith in Jesus. This is so easy for us to do, is it not? It is so easy for us to believe that groups of people or that individuals are outside of God's reach, that these people are just too far gone, and to believe that instead they belong in a category that we would call enemy. Enemy to the gospel, enemy to the church, enemy to the kingdom, enemy to the world that God wants to build here, enemy to our own way of life that we are choosing for ourselves. We do it everywhere. We do it in churches. We do it outside of churches. We do it with other religious groups. We do it with non-religious groups. We do it with people who challenge our uh, way of how we want to live and how we believe and we're no, we know for sure that God wants us to live. We say that church is too big. That church is too small. Those people really aren't getting Jesus in there. There's no way that it's going to work out that way. We say, look who's destroying America. Look who's giving the church a bad name. Look who's wrecking our world. Look who is trying to do the opposite of what I am absolutely certain that God wants. Our natural response is simply to reject people and expect that God is going to do the same thing. I cannot stop what they are doing, but I know they will not get the benefit of God's grace. The question, has God not rejected the Israelites? is the question that we want to ask about so many different people and so many different groups at different times. It is so 
um, common to do this, to see the world this way, that when you don't do this, it seems crazy and weird and reckless and irresponsible. I was reading an article this last week, and it was an article that was blasting um, Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham. And uh, Franklin Graham was doing an interview with a reporter, and they were asking him about the crisis in Ukraine and about the war and about uh, Russia and everything else. And in this interview, uh, Franklin Graham said this to a reporter when they asked him, what should a Christian's response to this be? He said um, that people should pray for the Russian president, Vladimir Putin whose regime has killed, now this is in the article, this is the way the article presents his call to prayer. Quick reminder here, Putin, whose regime has killed more than 3,000 Ukrainian troops and thousands of civilians, including children, and displaced 7.1 million people. This is his exact quote. He says, and I would recommend for people to pray for Putin. I don't want to be misunderstood. He will be. I don't want to be misunderstood on this point, he added. I want people to pray that God would change his heart and turn his heart around and that he would see the sin that he is involved in, that he would repent and turn from it. And if we pray, that could happen. Now, when I read the headline of this article, I thought, oh, man, he probably said something and he wasn't very clear and it probably is easy to misunderstand and misconstrue and he probably didn't give a lot of qualifiers or disclaimers. That's not what happened. He said the most Christian thing that I can think to say. He said, we're all caught up in what tanks can do and what military strategy can do and what social media can accomplish. But instead, he said, we believe in a God who we know can reach the heart of this person who's causing these evil things. And so we ought to pray that God would do that. Well, the internet blew up, which the internet basically does. That's what the internet's there for, right, is to blow up. And the internet blew up. And and there were articles that were written, and there were people with comments and lots of strongly worded opinions reminding him just who this person is and how bad they are. And the implication was that he must really like Putin to say to the Christians, you should pray for this guy. And I read his words, and I go, I don't think he likes him. I mean, they may not understand what repent means, turn his heart, all these bad things. Um, But this thing, when we do it, is so, like, strange and unusual and anti the way that we view this world around us that instead of being embraced most of the time and kind of seen as a really positive thing, we see it as a weak thing. We see it as a bad idea, as reckless, and as loving the things that people do that we would say make them our enemy. The grace of God is something that no one can earn or deserve. All groups have their ways of rebelling against God and against his grace. And what Paul is saying to the church, to the Gentiles largely in the church, is he is saying, God got through to me. He can get through to anyone. God's grace can get through to them. So no, God actually has not forsaken and rejected his entire people. He has not. He will continue to send people out with the gospel, with the message of grace to them. And we as a church will continue to want for them to respond just as much as we want for others to respond, who maybe don't come from such a religious background. I imagine that many of the people of the church were tired of trying to talk to religious people about Jesus. 
They were trying to talk to people who were concerned and obsessed with holy good living and self-righteousness and all these other things that they thought, can we just move beyond it, let it go, get as far away from it as possible? I'm sure they have been affected by it negatively. They probably grew up being told by these, being looked down on by these Jewish leaders who thought they were better than them. Well, now that they're in the church and they make up the majority of it, can't we say now that group is wrong? Paul says, sorry, guys, it's just not going to be that easy because everyone can be reached by the grace of God. Anyone can be reached by the grace of God. So he says that God still will save some. He calls these the elect. He says that God will elect them and it will be his grace that saves them, not their own work, not their own effort, not even their own deeper or better or more profound understanding of the theology than another person might have. But what the gospel is doing in these moments, be very clear on this, is the gospel is breaking through. He goes on to say, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. That's what he calls these people, a remnant that is chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So what Paul's saying here is very important. He's saying, it's not like God decided, okay, fine, you guys can have your way. I'm going to let a few of you just earn your way with your rules that don't actually work. No. He's saying, those who will choose, those who will be saved, those who are God's elect, coming from these groups that you think are the hardest to reach, they will be saved on the basis of grace, not because of who they are or what they did, which it probably will be easy to think that. If you're coming from a group like this and you do respond, you still want to come in sort of with some advantages, saying, well, the reason God chose me, the reason that I'm here, obviously, is because, um, you know, uh, I am better than the rest of you. I maybe know more. I am more obedient. I'm more familiar with the law. And so because of that, you should respect me even more. He says, it's going to be on the same basis as everyone else, the even playing field exists. When I was thinking about this this week, this, this passage at the beginning of this chapter that can seem so complicated and so obscure to so many people, I continued to go back to this thing that we continue to encounter in our lives as we grow older. I don't know why. I was thinking about growing older this week for some reason. And I was thinking about this thing that we call deconstruction. Now, to deconstruct something is to, is to take it apart so that you can understand the presumptions, the assumptions, and the false things that are there. Uh, so that you can better understand the nature of this thing. We think of deconstructing faith as a person coming from a background of faith and then looking at it again and starting to pull the whole thing apart and saying, you know, where was this in the Bible anyway? And how was that really what it was supposed to be about? And this wasn't good. This was actually bad. It often happens when people feel like they never question things and then all of a sudden are overwhelmed when sort of hit in the face with all of these things that they realize I don't have answers to. Or maybe it's seeing other groups of people, seeing other people who you think that couldn't be further from the way I think the Bible says Jesus wanted us to be. And so I deconstruct their group. I deconstruct what they're doing and where they're at. Deconstructing is kind of an important part of growing. It's our way of not just simply being conditions of or being the result of our environment. 
It's, it's, it's our way of stopping and saying, well, hang on a second. Let me think about this thing. Let me evaluate this thing. Let me think where the truth is in this thing and maybe where the assumptions might have led me in the wrong direction. Paul, better than anyone, had to do this. When he was raised as a Jewish person, thought he was killing it for God, and then God encounters him on the road to Damascus and is like, man, you couldn't be more wrong about this, but you're my child. And Paul then would go on to spend years of his life looking back and going, wait, how could I have been trying so hard to do the right things? How could I have thought I was a part of the group of people who were seeking God the right way, but it turns out that I was off, that I was wrong? And as he did that, he started to see these things within himself, these things within his his culture, but especially within himself, saying, well, here's where self-righteousness mattered to me. Here's this high opinion that I had of myself that was in pride. Here's this anger and bitterness that I had towards other people that was really driving it. In fact, when I really look at all of those motivations, I go, they were a bigger part of this thing than I ever would have thought before. There's this thing that happens with so many of us where we look back at experiences that we've had in life and we don't like what we're looking back on for one reason or another. You may have grown up in an environment that, is, that was very rigid, an environment that felt very rule-based, an environment that seemed more focused on legalism, on this perpetual feeling of disappointment, maybe even fear. It may have been your family or it may have just been kind of the people that you were sort of around the most in your community where you grew up. Uh, You may look back on that and you may think, that is the last thing that I want to be a part of ever again or anymore. And so you look back at that and you go, how can I not? How can I get away from that? And much of the time when we do things like that, we, we assume that God was a part of those things and then we kind of toss him out. But the good news about the gospel, the good news about God's grace, is that even as you look at those things and you say, I want to shed and get rid of all of the untrue things, all the exaggerated things, all the things that people may have polluted along the way that I was a part of, that I wasn't happy with, that I didn't like. What you will find if you look is that the gospel can survive all of that. You can get rid of those things, and you can, you can look back on those things and see where the error was, and you will still be left with a gospel of grace that does not change. A gospel that can reach through even your own past, the things that you come from, and that can minister to you right now. What you will be left with that is real, I promise is God's saving grace. You might be somebody who who had a bad church experience. You were a part of a church or a group of people or around people and you felt like uh, there were scandals in church or it may even just be that what what you associate with the church is these scandals that you hear about. The church does not have a good reputation, you say. Religious people do not have a good reputation, you might say. There are entire denominations, entire groups that it seems are getting in trouble for not actually practicing what it is they've been preaching. You begin to see church more and more just as a group of people who are quick to claim they're the chosen ones with the truth and then go on to live completely contrary to the way that Jesus did. You may associate church with bad things, but if you look at that stuff and pull out the things that are not of Jesus and of the Bible... 
What you will still find, I can promise you, is a gospel of the grace of God that can survive that deconstruction. It can. I grew up in a church that I thought was a pretty solid church, and then I came to find out that it was actually a cult. And you can bet that there was some looking back and reevaluating things. And as I did that, what I found was that the gospel reaches even into that. And as I shared stories with other people coming out of the same environment, I found that it was forced us to say the answer is not the perfect church, the answer is not this new set of rules, the answer is not how different we can be from everyone around us and the identity we can find in that. The answer is not the righteousness that we can achieve. The answer is the gospel, a gospel of grace. You can grow up in an environment of no religion at all. You can come from a place where all of this talk is just nonsense and baloney and ridiculous. And I promise you that if you look at the world that we are living in today, if you look at the things that we are dealing with as a people, if you look at your own life, and if you are willing to have the courage to look inside your own heart, what you will find is that the gospel is life in God's grace for you, even in that place where you think religion and you think all of this stuff that people talk about with talking snakes and floods that you're not even sure whether they happened or not and where were dinosaurs and all that and everything else, what you will find is the gospel reaches through all of that stuff and all of those questions, and it is true. The message that God's grace saves What I love about what Paul is saying here about the people of Israel is that you have to understand that for the church mostly filled with Gentiles, there was no harder group of people to reach with the message of grace than these people who were so focused on being good people. Their whole identity was wrapped up in the rules they could follow and how good they can be. And Paul's message to them is, guys, look at me. I am living proof of the fact that the gospel and the grace of God can break through any of that. So you might be hearing this and looking at this and you might be seeing this complicated thing happening with Romans 11 and you might be going like there are people out there that are the enemy. And I don't think that like that's, that's I, don't, I don't think it's going to work out for them and God. That's like the one thing I know for sure. And the answer Paul would say to that is that's not true. There is no group of people who can't be reached by this message of grace. Because you were reached by it. And you weren't probably as easy to reach as you thought. For some of us, we have put ourselves in that category. We have gotten ourselves into these situations or looked at ourselves in the world and we've gone like, uh, I'm just not sure, honestly, that when I sift through all of the things that are associated with religion, with God, with Christianity, with any of it, I'm not sure when I start to deconstruct and I start to pull that thread that the whole thing isn't going to come unwound. I promise you, you can pull that thread all you want. Ask every single question that you have. What you will find is you will find truth in the gospel of the grace of God that brings us into a relationship with him. Especially if you look within your own heart. If this is true, that there is a way for the gospel to break through and to reach anyone, anywhere, in any group of people, at any place, at any time, then I think the question is, are we 
to build bridges to those that we think are too far gone? Or is it more sensible and wise to build up walls and to say, what God wants is for us to protect ourselves from being hurt and influenced and compromised by them. I mean, let's be honest, they're too far gone anyway, right? We are so often drawn back to works on the law. We are also so often drawn back to protecting ourselves and our communities and our families and our relationships from the influences of those that we see as trying to wreck everything for us. The power, says Paul, is in the grace of God and is in the power of the message of the gospel. He says, it changed me, it reached me. And it was a pretty extreme case of someone being reached. But if God's going to do it, he can get through anything to do it. I've been thinking this last week about things. I've been reflecting in life. That happens when you have a big birthday. Like Justin said, I wasn't sure if anybody would say it. I was hoping they wouldn't, but he did. So I don't have to like explain to you that you know people get older every year. And this year had a, was a big one for me this week. Uh, this is my this is my card that I got. That's if you look really hard, you can see a forty in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> come on, that's the lazy dog. I'll just say that. I think there was a period and that was the puppy, and uh, he's she's gone in that picture. Uh, you know, one of the things that happens, you know, you turn 40 and you start to ask yourself all these questions. You start to go, you know, is this it? Am I just shopping at Costco for my clothes from now on? Is this it? Am I just, am I just like, you know, is the best part of my day going to be a nap that I can sneak in or something like that? Uh, but I think the real question that people associate with a birthday like this, with a time like this in life, is it's the point when people will stop and they'll kind of evaluate and they'll go like, you know, is this, you know, like, like, am I where God wants me to be? Or, or, or am I where I'm, is this what I want, want to be? Is this what I'm supposed to be, be doing? Is this where, you know, like, am I, have I made enough of a difference yet? Like, do I need to pick it up and I need to pick up the pace? Do I need to slow down? And do I need to completely change what I'm doing or where I'm going or whatever's happening? These are the things that can happen. People have these big crises because of this and they start to like unbutton their shirts and get sports cars and stuff like that. If you see that happening, you're welcome to call me on it. It'll be like a baby dedication thing. It'll be like if you, you know, as a whole church, collectively, we will not let you do that, right? Please don't do that. You know, the thing that I've been so grateful about as I've been thinking about this chapter in this week of my life is that it has caused me to think about how you get to this point and you think, I would love to be at a point in my life where I don't need the grace of God anymore. I would love to be at a point in my life where I can say, I finally can do it on my own. I've kind of done enough now, and it's great. God's like, no, you're good. You're good. Well, let's go. I'll focus my grace on the mess, the people that are a mess, but you're not one of them. You're great. But what I find myself realizing is that it never gets easier, it seems. Uh, those of you who are very old, you know, you can talk to me after the service and tell me if it gets easier to receive the grace of God and to recognize that you are not finally in a place where you can earn this on your own. That never gets easier, especially as you get older, I think. But what I also realize is the biggest regret that I have is the times that I have wavered and I have cared about and I have focused on something that takes away from 
the gospel itself. It is so easy for us to do that. It is so easy to focus on just really trying to behave better, on on trying to maybe figure out the right group of people that I can finally be angry at, finally figuring out the way things are supposed to be and the way the world is supposed to look and focusing on that itself. Or just finally, please God, can somebody, like I love those sermons on Jesus getting angry in the courtyard because I'm like, I love getting angry. I love it. Let's hear about how we're allowed to be angry about something. And as much as I want that to be the case, God continually brings me back to simply the gospel and the message of his grace and says, this is what people should spend their lives on. This is what we are to be devoted to. Why do I have any hope in my life and in the life to come? Because God's grace. Because God says, I want a relationship with you, and I have made a way for you to have it with me, and it is not because you've obeyed all the right rules. It's not because of where you come from. It's because of my grace. There is nothing that gives hope like that. And there is nothing, there is nothing worth living your life for more than that. And as we, as we marry the people that we love, as we grow up in the families that God's placed us in, as we go to our jobs every day, as we raise our children, we do that first and foremost in a way that makes it possible for other people to see the gospel. There is no group that cannot be reached by it. There is no child or person in your life that cannot be reached by the gospel. It may feel like there is, but there isn't. I can't think of anything better to spend our lives fighting for, reminding others of, bringing each other in the church back to and focusing ourselves on again and again and again. That is the place that we continue to return to. Let's pray. Father, you are...